my spiritual father. He is the seal of an apostle over this house. Um, as I said this morning, we labor in the foundations of the apostolic foundations he's laid and has been laboring in, um, and we are rejoicing. In, many of you that have been in word school, you are familiar with those foundations, but I'd like to enjoy, introduce Sam to the rest of you who don't know him. To, the, to most of us, he is uh, the father over this house, over the tribe. We are of the tribe of Sam, and I've become Peter Samson. So welcome, Sam. Well, that's, that's better than being Samsonite. <laughs> Good evening. These are fabulous songs. They're the sound of a season. You know, the old songs were one time new, and they represented the sound of that season. But these are songs that are capturing the heart of what God is saying in our time. And I was sitting there thinking, in fact, I asked uh, Peter afterward, I said, who are writing these songs? The world needs to hear these songs. Certainly the body of Christ needs to hear these songs. This is a song in its season. And I want to both commend and encourage those of you who are involved in the writing of these songs. Now, <clears throat> this morning we, we uh, covered quite a bit of ground in two sessions. And what has come to be true is that uh, the Cape Town series, as they're called, and this is the third of uh, the Cape Town series, what is true is that the Cape Town series are greatly anticipated. The Cape Town series is, people are looking forward to hearing these things. Years ago, the Lord told me that he would take me to the ends of the earth to proclaim the message of the kingdom. Now, in a typical Americentric perspective, I thought I would go somewhere where the land ended, the ends of the earth, and I'd preach messages about the kingdom. I didn't understand that he actually was going to send me to the ends of the earth, to the Cape. Because it's from here that the sound is coming. I mean, imagine it. You, you cannot fail to see this that from the ends of the earth, a light is arising because there's a house of light. A lighthouse. A house of light. And the light will come through from here, from the ends of the earth. The message of the kingdom will come in the end of the age. So we are, we're in divine positionings in the Lord. Uh, in most of the work that I have done or that I do, uh, I speak in the company of others. But this is a time when the Lord, through the grace of Peter, 
and the lighthouse has made it possible for me to come and lay out an entire overarch of things, really a teaching series, as opposed to working in, in tandem with, with others. Now, there's great value in that. But this allows me to lay out in an overarch uh, one message after another, after another, after another, that is of such a foundational nature that we are being reset in our minds. Years ago, I began to understand that the church had not actually been exposed to the elementary doctrines. That, in fact, the very term elementary doctrines seemed offensive to some, although it's specifically stated in Scripture. We will leave behind the elementary doctrines and go on to maturity. And he said, and God permitting, this we shall do. This is said in the book of Hebrews. Most people had not had a clear overarching study of the six basic doctrines that constitute the elementary doctrines. And I've talked about that before, so I won't go into it now. And certainly, uh, teachings on this subject are available. I, I did it here, didn't I? Yeah. The elementary doctrines. I have to tell you an anecdotal story. This one fellow was listening to, uh, to my messages and he would go through and pick out things that uh, sounded ponderous, you know, like um, the epistemology of faith. <laughs> and uh, he kept looking at the elementary doctrines and he kept thinking, I don't need to listen to those. It says elementary doctrines, I'm way beyond that. But it kept calling him back. And so he said to me on one occasion, he said, I finally broke down and listened to the elementary doctrines. He said, have you thought about relabeling that advanced theology? <laughs> because he said, I didn't know the first thing about it. But it's elementary in the sense of elemental, foundational. Like children go to elementary school um, to learn the, the basics, basic skills, which then are developed in an advancing fashion so that uh, they can build upon it and become and, and have even greater complexities of understanding. I believe that uh, in our laboring, and those of you who have been part of our laboring, it's time to leave the elementary doctrines to go on to maturity. Not because we don't need the elementary doctrines anymore, but because we should be so versed in them. We should be so practiced in the applications of the elementary things that they have become part of our spiritual DNA. And now we can go on to maturity. Paul said, to the Corinthians, he said, I made the decision before I chose to come, to come to be with you that while I was with you, I would choose to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because he gave as his reason, he 
said, because you're still on milk. But by now, you ought to be teachers of the word, but you're still on milk. You're still carnal. You're still immature. But he said, in between the two things, I chose to come to you knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and who crucified, and because you are in milk. He then said, in between those two statements, he had said, but we have a message of wisdom among the mature. But it's not the wisdom of this world. It's the most difficult of undertakings particularly for one who speaks in public or for one who has the task of engaging this, this difficult thing, it's the most difficult task of all to change human culture. And I perfectly understand why no one wants to attempt it. Because you have to change mindsets. It's so much easier to get up and say the things that you know your audience knows, sort of like a rock star. You know, everybody who comes to the concert knows all the songs. And they're singing along because they've owned those songs, because those songs are attached to memories that are important to them. So you hardly have to do much if you are a public performer. Other than knowing what the audience wants, you, have, you don't really have to do much other than tell them what they want. And they go away having had a soul fest. Their souls have feasted and are even more enlarged in their capacities to maintain uh, the status quo. But to change culture, to reset mind, is the most difficult thing to do. But what we have working for us is the power of God as revealed through the word to change the mindsets. Now, um, we have two minds, of course. We have the mind of the soul and we have the mind of the spirit. The mind of the soul loves predictability. It loves certainty. It loves for one day to be like another because the bane of the soul is uncertainty. The loss of control is the most threatening thing to the human soul. Human beings will behave quite irrationally. People who are otherwise perfectly rational will behave completely rationally if they believe that the thing that is at stake is the loss of control. So whenever you undertake to change human culture, you're, you're undertaking a very threatening thing. And to change the culture from an emphasis of the soul to an emphasis on the spirit requires the work of God. But you know, anyone who, who has the opportunity to influence generations has no alternative except to bring the word of God in the season in which God is bringing that word. 
it's, it's, it requires a craftsmanship forged in the school of grace. And I'm saying these things to young people because I'm saying these things among the audience to young people because it is easy to be popular. It's much more difficult to be a standard. Much more difficult, Alyssa, to be a standard. Anybody can be popular. Just do what the crowd wants. But to be a standard, you're playing in the field of immortality. You'll impress your generation and you'll impress the generations after you. Do not take the easy way. It is eminently forgettable. And you with it. The other is the more difficult. But it is certainly the most lasting. So I began this series this morning with an emphasis on definitions because one of the things that has to be reset in the mindset is basically our understanding of familiar things. Scriptures say, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I understood as a child, and I acted as a child. But when I become a man, I put away childish things. Now that's not difficult to understand because it's playing right into the pathway, right in the model of growing up. When I see, when I see old, older men and women who cannot adjust to the reality of being older, I see foolish people. You know, I can't bound up the stairs like I once did. I watch Peter with his much younger legs like a mountain goat come up. And I have, to be, I have to make sure that I put my feet just where I want them. You know, it may take me twice as long now to go half as far. But it's not how quickly I get there. It's what I say when I get there. I will recap just briefly, so both for those who, who uh, have not heard these things before, as well as for those who have been listening, because the two sessions this morning ran, what, an, an average of an hour and a half or something? More, more, more or less. And a lot of stuff came flowing through. So it wouldn't hurt to have a bit of a, a pause and a recap, recapitulation of what has been said in order to reset the mindset so that we can build further. So we talked this morning about, we defined the term faith, pistis, saying that it was based upon two principles, that God exists as our Father and rewards us with the discovery of his faithfulness to us when we diligently seek him. On, the, on that basis of faith, pistis, 
we hypostasis, we stand under. So faith, according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the substance of things hoped for. The word for substance is the word hypostasis, and it means the posture under which you stand, because hupo means under, stasis is your stance. So the way we stand under the reality that God is our Father, the way that affects us, the way that engenders our response to God, is the manner in which we stand under it. But indeed we don't just stand under it, the manner of our standing is we lie down, tatimi, which is to say we are as if we are asleep. We are, in fact, it's a parallel to the word for burial. So we lie down without resistance under the truth that God is our Father in the anticipation that He will raise us up or He will rise up within us, which is the term histemi, from which we get the pharmaceutical term histamine. So in our vulnerability, because we have adopted as the posture of our lives into which we have come to rest, we have adopted the truth that God exists as our Father and we'll find Him when we'll search for Him with all our hearts. And finding Him is not just a matter of intellectual pursuit. Finding Him is to discover the reality of His presence in our circumstances. Because he'll stand up when we lie down, prostrate in him, vulnerable, he will stand up in our circumstance. Uh, we talked about the term antihistamine, uh, because in an environment of vulnerability to allergens, for example, the body secretes water fluid to cushion the vital organs. That secretion of, uh, of, of water is called histamine. The body produces histamines to cushion the vital organs. So uh, pharmacy, the pharmaceutical sciences have learned how to mitigate the, the production of water so that the organs are cushioned, but the airways are not blocked. They can still function. So an antihistamine is not meant to, to neutralize the body's production of histamines. It's meant to minimize or to find that balance between the body being protected by the histamine as well as being able to function. The, the notion, you see, that faith is a belief in order to gain things is, is, sim is simply silly. It's nonsense. It's not biblical. Because it translates the word substance as material things, when it actually refers to a posture of belief. A posture of belief. Because the word is not some reference to a thing, 
It's a, refer it's a compound word, hupo, which means under. Stasis is posture. The way you posture yourself un under the belief that God exists as your father and you will find him in the midst of threatening circumstances, the way you posture yourself is to lie down. This is the manner in which we enter God's rest and cease from our labors. We looked, uh, pursuing that, that point, we looked at the fact that uh, Israel in the wilderness was charged with both disobedience and unbelief. The, those two things, those two words, disobedience and unbelief, are the same word in the Greek. They're the word apatheo, from which we get the English word apathy. So if you say you believe God, but fail to enter his rest, and you do that consistently for 40 years, God will conclude that you are, you are in unbelief and you have rebelled against his intentions to bring you into rest. That's why the scriptures say, so today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't stretch it out for 40 years. There has to be a time when you say, yes and amen, I am going to go into this. Because if you stretch it out for 40 years, you will anger God. And he will swear on oath in his anger that you will never enter his rest. You will never be the beneficiary of the truth that he exists as your father and will come into your circumstances in the times of your, of your trusting him. You will never enter his rest. God, when God swears that you will not enter his rest, he looked for the next generation. You see, this stuff has nothing to do with believing for stuff. It has to do with entering into God's rest. Why? I said because God's power The reference to God's power is the reference to his sovereignty and his ability to sustain you in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. So we discussed the aspects of God's power in terms of both power and authority. Dunamis, dunamis, D-U-N-A-M-I-S, dunamis and exousia from which we get the word execute, exercise, executive. And we saw ourselves, we looked at the difference between the character of power at rest and the character of power exercised. And we, we, we connected that to the word kratos, K-R-A-T-O-S, which is the manifestation of God's power. And we saw that the exousia of God's character of power 
the exousia of God's character of power, the, the executives of God's power at rest are the sons of God. And we looked at the title of seeing the potential of the one who has all authority. The one who has all authority is called the plenary. And the one who exercises on behalf of the plenary, his power is the plenary potentiary. These are governmental terms. So that when an, when an ambassador goes to represent a nation, he is the manifested potential of the power of that nation. You are the plenary potentiary of the, the, the power of God in exercise. You are the manner in which God chooses to exercise his power. Now, this power, this power, in its in its direction to you. When God exercises power on your behalf, not the power he exercises through you, but the exercise of power toward you. Grace, God acting toward us. That is called grace. Grace is the manifestation of the power of God in support of your life and being. Now, the two words, so I want to go back now and pick up definitions. I've given you a rundown uh, in, what, five minutes of what it took me nearly three hours to unpack this morning. So, uh, admittedly, this is, no, this is nothing more than a summary to reset the minds both of those who have listened to three hours already and or those who have not heard any of it before. We typically, uh, in, in our theology, use the word mercy. Or we use the word grace when we mean the word mercy. Let me explain. We say, you should have grace for him. If somebody offends you, does things that are wrong, we'll say, you need to have grace for him. Or when God forgives our trespasses and sins, we say we are the beneficiaries of God's grace. God in his grace uh, winks at my transgression. No, what we mean is God in his mercy. The words in the Greek are very different. The word for mercy is spelled E-L-E-O-S, eleos. And it means compassion, mercy, goes with such words as loving kindness and forgiveness. But grace is something quite different. Grace is, represents the form in which the power of God flows from God to you. Because, 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 here is why. We touched on this this morning. 
There are three sources of life. And we either have or have the potential of living out of three sources. The first of the sources is called bios. Bios. B-I-O-S. We, we anglicize the Greek term and we call it bios. Sometimes if you're in the workings of your computer, it'll come up and the word will come up, the bios, and there'll be a bunch of information about the, bi the bios or the life of the computer, or the programming in the computer. But bios represents the lowest form of life. It's life here on the planet. And it's an examination of the internal workings of the organic structure known as a human being. And the interaction of that organic structure with the rest of the world around him or her, including other organic structures. The circumference of that description of life is the word bios or bios. In fact, we study it in school under the science, under the logic of bios, or bios logos, or biology. Right? And that's what we study. We study uh, phylum, species, uh, we study taxonomy, we study the internal structure of the human systems and the like. We when we talk about the environment, in which the bios live, we talk about the sphere of the bios, or the biosphere, right? These aren't, I mean, they're familiar terms, but they actually mean something. There's a greater level of life other than bios, or beyond bios. And that's the life for which there is no real ability to examine, but there may be some predictability to that form of life. And it's mostly observable, it's mostly that you can predict that form of life by your ability to observe recurring behaviors. And that form of life is called suke, P-S-E-U-C-H-E, suke. We get the word psychology from suke because it's a study of the mind. Because you see, there's an interconnection between bios and suke. In the bios, we have five senses, and we take in impulses into our persons through these five senses. We interpret, we interpret the meaning of these impulses through, typically, through the suke. So, for example, if we're asleep, the five senses are dormant, and the suke is unengaged. When we're awake, the five senses are alive, or are functional, and we process information. The, one of the aspects of uh, suke is that it contains, uh, it contains emotion which are triggered on the basis of these impulses we take in through the five senses. One of the most common responses, one of the most common emotions triggered by these 
impulses we take in through the five senses is the emotion of fear. It's, it's the most common, it's the most dominant resident emotion within the suke. Because the suke by itself is cut off from the ability to love in a manner that negates you becoming a victim through the impulses that you take in through the five senses. If you're unconnected to the other form of life that I will talk about in a moment, if you're unconnected to that, the impulses you take in through the five senses will inevitably cause you to retreat and defend yourself because you will be, the emotion of fear within your soul will be inevitably uh, activated. Something greater, something transcendent has to govern the way the suke processes the things that come in uh, through the five senses. And that thing is the other form of life, the highest form of life. That form of life is called zoe, Z-O-E with the two dots over the E. Because zoe, you see, is a form of life that you're capable of accessing, but that form of life has nothing to do with the biosphere. It's nothing to do with the earth. It has nothing to do with creation. It has nothing to do with other human beings. It has nothing to do with the way you naturally think. Zoe is the reference to the life that is the same in God. That's the life of God. So when the scriptures say the Son, meaning Jesus the Lord, the Son has life in himself, and he gives that life to whomever he wills, that's Zoe. If you are the possessor of Zoe, it is because there is a container within your being that has been activated because it was once set in place by the one who created you. The container of Zoe in you is called your spirit called your spirit, and it connects to the eternal, it connects to the life that is in God himself. So when you have eternal life, you're living in the biosphere, powered by, motivated by, governed by, infused by, sustained by the life of God. So you have eternal life in your biosphere. Now, okay, now, quite obviously, that's a life of power because intrinsically it is the life of God that is now available to you within the device that God placed within you called the Spirit. So when you're born again, what is activated is the container of bios, and you can receive the life from God into that container, and it revolutionizes your entire perspective on who you are and why you are here.
And the first reference to that life in you, the first response of that life in you is you call out as if you're born from another planet or from another realm. You say, Father, Father. And you're not talking about your daddy. You're talking about the one whose life now is filling up filling up the measure that is called your spirit. Now that's a life of dunamis. That's a life that's a very complex life. You know, these aren't the things we, we talk about. These aren't the things we've studied out. The complexity of that life is just as complex as God himself. Doesn't have anything to do with you. Doesn't have anything to do with what you worked for, what you're entitled to. It is a gift from God. And that gift comes in five administrations that are known as grace. Okay? You see how vastly different this concept is from mercy. Mercy relates to the characteristic of God that has to do with loving kindness. Grace has to do with the characteristics of God that have to do with power. Power. The power to sustain you. The power to establish you. The power to conform you. The power to enable you to become an accurate representation in the earth of who God himself is because that's why you have the life of God in you. If you have the life of Adam in you, who are you going to behave like? Adam. Because you're born of Adam. If you have the life of God in you, why would you need the life of God in you anyway? I mean, you should, you're already alive, just live your days and be done. Right? Why do you need life that, that cannot dissipate? What's the value of that? So we could be consumers of poiki and... <laughs> Does it make sense? <laughs> you see, I love it. This young man in front here is tracking. <laughs> Makes no sense, does it? You wouldn't need that high life if all you're here for is going in the veldt and having bush tucker and that sort of thing. What do you need Zoe for? Unless and until you understand that your life is not expendable because it's tied up with the reality of God, then you begin to explore what is the purpose of having the life in me that comes from God. The life in me that comes from my mother and my father allows me to live like my mother and father. And when I was a kid, I was named after my father, and they called him Sammy. So uh, his father called him Sammy. So if I were walking down the street of my village, 
Um, and someone saw me and said, uh, who's that boy? And somebody might say, oh, that's Sammy Solon's boy. He looks just like him. He walks like him. My mother used to say, you walk like your father. And that wasn't a good thing, apparently. <laughs> so I had to learn to walk differently. In your bios, you look like, and your purpose is, that you are like, or you are, you're supposed to be like, your forebears. But if you're born of God, why? Why do you suppose God created a container within your being that he meant to fill with the life that transcends human life? That has to do with your purpose. You need that because you are this. You see? I know you see. I'm trying to make it as simple because in the architecture of trying to change mindsets, this is the most difficult thing to affect. That which is born of flesh is flesh. But if you're born again of the Spirit, you are a spirit being. And your father is not your natural father. Your father is the father of this new being. So if any man be in Christ, listen guys, you know the scriptures. I know you know the scriptures. But this is the day when the breath of God is blowing on the word. And dried bones, old mindsets, dead ways are discovering new life. Because it is the time. So when we speak of grace, we're speaking about distributions of the power inherent in the nature of God to enable you to function in your biosphere as if you're not from here. To cause you to live on the earth as the exact representation of your Father who is in heaven. So let me talk with you a little bit. Of, so, so there's an absolute distinction between grace, which is a reference to distributions of power. And this morning I gave a very quick, uh, almost in note form, uh, synopsis of the five elements of the distribution of this power to sustain this new life, both to define the life and to sustain it. And you notice that in everything I'm saying, I'm not trying to tell you of anything you need to do. I am just attempting to reveal God to you. I'm attempting to reveal the intents of God to you. So that in the container of your spirit, you may be enlarged. Because it is with that, that the capacity to engage your destiny also comes. Okay? So, let me talk a little bit... So mercy is very different from grace. Mercy references the compassionate 
character of God to the unfortunate. He's long-suffering, he's kind, he's gentle. And by the way, by the way, one of the things that is falling down today is this image of the man of God. There's been a caricature of what it means to be a man of God. The caricature is formed in the womb of the insecure. Whenever you see men strutting, whenever you can't touch them, you know what the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, having suddenly come back from the dead, you know what he said to his disciples? Touch me. Handle me. Eternal life is touchable. It's meant to be handled. Taste and see. So, when you see men posturing, they're not men of God. They're men of the flesh. They're not men of God. They're soul men. Because you know how you know a man of God? He's secure in who his father is. Because it says so in the word. For men of God are gentle and they do not strive because they're fully vested. They're robed in what something else we talked about this morning, the magisterium. You remember that? Magistrates, magisterium, Elohim. Listen to that portion. I don't have time to go back through it tonight. It's that characteristic of God that is majestic, that handles power and authority without partiality, that dispenses justice without favoritism, you never keep an eye on who has the potential to give you the biggest offering. It means nothing to you. It means nothing to you. As God brings back the template of the actual, of the original, it will radically deconstruct the fakes. I am I'm attempting to implore you that you might understand the God I represent. But it, can, it cannot be my words alone. It cannot be my words alone, even if my words are right. Because the standard of the representation of God's righteousness is not merely in saying right things. We must be the incarnation of the things we're saying. It must first work in us. Otherwise, we have no business pretending it'll work in anybody else. And that's why we have to strut and fret upon this stage of life, as Shakespeare would say. 
like, being like sound and fury, signifying nothing. A line from Macbeth. So you have to impress you. No, if they cannot be touched, if they cannot be handled, they're not real. They're afraid they'll break. What is it like if you're to meet the Lord Jesus Christ? Or more, more to the point, what is your idea of being in the presence of God the Father? What do you suppose Father means? I mean, this is the source of your origin. This is your progenitor. This is one from whom you come. What would he wish to convey to you about himself? Yeah. It's sort of like when I see my grandchildren. When I see my grandchildren, oh, I have to tell you this story. So, so uh, my, uh, my seven-year-old grandson is playing uh, soccer, football. Um, in America, we call, soccer, we call football soccer. You, you do that too? Okay. So he's playing soccer. He's playing football. And um, he's not very good. <laughs> he hasn't figured it out yet. So I go to see him, not to get excited about the game. I go to see him to see him. But I also have the additional benefit of seeing my two little granddaughters. So I walked in uh, uh, to, I went to the field where they were playing, and it was still quite hot in Albuquerque, where I live, and uh, I had this umbrella with me. So I was sitting next to my, my oldest, uh, the oldest of those three grandchildren. Her name is Selah. And I said to Selah, I sat down beside her, and at the appropriate moment, I opened the umbrella, and I said, uh, Selah, do you know why I bring an umbrella to the, uh, to the match? And she looked at me and said, no, granddad. I said, because I don't want the sun to turn me black. She looked at me and she said, Granddad, you're already black. <laughs> I said, Selah, it's a joke. Oh, she just, it's that one moment when, when, when children come alive and she got it and she just laughed, slapped her thigh and laughed again and would and then she'd look at me in a sidelong view from time to time, and she'd just laugh all over again. <laughs> so I was telling her father, my son Nick, I was telling him, did Selah tell you what I said about the umbrella? He said yes, and she was laughing uncontrollably all over again. I told my wife afterward, I said, uh, I want her to remember her grandfather as a kind and gentle old man. I don't want her to think of 
her grandfather necessarily as some, you know, globe-trotting apostle or some, some ponderable, ponderous figure. No, I want her to think of the one who brings her a certain kind of chocolate because I've brought her one since she was old enough to have one. And I want her to remember how funny her grandfather was. I want her to know the source of her origin with, intentionally. I want her to be impacted by the kindness. I want her to understand that she's not lost or at loose ends. She comes from people who understand the obligations of being noble. I want her, when she thinks of me after I'm gone, to remember her kind old grandfather. When you meet with God, you should come away being established in who you are. Otherwise, we're orphans. We have to start over. We have to start over in every generation because we're given nothing. We were put here to be the incarnation of the very nature of God. It's God's idea, you know. To be, in, to be found in human form. It's not our idea. Incarnation is not a ponderous or formidable uh, reality. It is actually the design and the intention of God. And if he is unable to be incarnated in your person, it's because you chose not to engage the life he offered you from himself. Just like we have life from our forebears in the natural, so we are to have life from God in our spirit for the purpose of understanding who we are and why we are here. It is the most fundamentally important, these two things are the most fundamentally important questions every human being wrestles with. And it doesn't matter what you build, how much you gain, what power you have in the earth. If you have not resolved the question of who am I, what is my identity, and what, are, what is my purpose, you will always live and function as an orphan. And you get your sense of identity and your sense of purpose from your father. Now, <clears throat> so let me talk to you a little bit more about grace. Like I said, mercy is just the compassion of God. And it's the word eleos. But the word grace, the word grace is a reference to two things. The two words that reference grace in the scriptures. One word is charis, K-A-R-I-S, charis. We get charismatic from that, charis. 
And the other is propia, P-R-O-P-E-A, propia, charis and propia. Now, here is how it works. When these young people were dancing on the stage tonight, oh, what a joyous expression that was. I absolutely enjoyed watching you. When they were doing that, they were graceful. They were graceful. So we use the word, we use one of the terms for grace to describe behavior, to describe action, movement, function. The other is a state of being at rest. It's a character. You, you don't have to do anything. Like when we're talking about power this morning, we spoke of dunamis and exousia. Dunamis is a character of power at rest, and I referred to that as like dynamite in the storehouse. Because the word for dynamite, we actually get the English word dynamite from the Greek term dunamis. Okay? Now that's not blowing up anything. That's the potential to blow stuff up. But it's not, it's that when, you blow, when you're blowing things up, that's exercise, that's executive power, that's exousia. But before you can have exousia, you must have the potential of exousia. So it is a characteristic, even though it's not in exercise. All right? So the characteristic of God the characteristic of God, referenced by the term grace, is the word charis. And it means his innate nature to extend power on behalf of those who trust him. That's why we can lie down, tetimi. That's why we can lie down in the truth that he exists as our father because he knows when to move from charis to propia. He knows when to become executive. He knows when to execute on our behalf. And in fact, what triggers the executive action of God on our behalf is precisely our vulnerability. When we place ourselves in, in dire uh, sub submission to him, the character of grace requires God to act. It's his character. The word charis implies the inevitability of God motivated to act upon the 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 the, the upon the observation of those who have put their trust in him so sufficiently demonstrated that they're lying down in the midst of danger. It's something like, you prepare for me a table in the presence of my... That's grace. That's the character of grace. So... Before you can act, there has to be preceded by the action the existing character 
of grace, which is the obligation to behave in a certain way regarding those who trust you uh, implicitly. It's, this is about God. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to reveal the nature of God to you. So, charis, the word for grace, is a reference to the intrinsic, the internal, the intrinsic, the resident, the thing at rest. God doesn't have to do anything to have the character of charis. He is that. Now, the word propia is where we get the English word appropriate. Appropriate. For the behavior to be graceful, for the execution of grace, for what we do to be said to be graceful, it has to be under under understood underscored, understudied, or under, um, underlain by the existing character of grace. Now, let me give you an example. In the old days, when uh, in, in ancient Greece, for example, when actors went to, to, down to the, to the stadiums, to perform plays, whether by Aeschylus, Euripides, or whomever. They would wear a mask. And if they're portraying a, a comic character, and to this day, theater masks are like that. If they portrayed a comic character, they'd have a smile, smiling mask. And they'd hold the mask in front of their faces. And the mask also was designed to amplify the sound that they made. Correspondingly, if they were portraying a tragic character, they would wear a frowning mask the other way. And uh, that would indicate that they were presenting the picture of a tragic person. Now, the audience understood that these actors were not the actual characters that they were playing. So they had a word for them. They were called hypocrites. I promise you. The word hypocrite is when you pretend to act gracefully separate and apart from the character of grace. You're a hypocrite. Sure. You should have been laughing at my saying sure, because I don't say sure, except when I'm here. <laughs> you say sure. <laughs> or ish. <laughs> so, a hypocrite is someone who pretends to possess the character of power but is unconnected to the source of power and therefore lacks the character of power. You know what we're doing? We're empowering the people of God to judge matters accurately. 
and the pretenders will find no place anymore. Because you, bringing out the rod, the measuring stick, you will know by their works, you will know whether they are authentic or they're playing, they're amplifying a sound with a mask and are therefore not the real thing or hypocrites. So there are five, five bases of the showing of grace. The power of God sustains the Zoe life in us by five specific administrations. So you'll find references to grace distributed in five forms. Number one, I'll give you all five first, and then I'll go back through and talk to you about what each one is. Number one, there's the grace of salvation. For by grace you have been saved. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. What kind of gift is it? It's a gift of power. Because no demon in hell, no indeed all of the configurations of that which opposes God cannot prevent that grace from rescuing you from the powers of darkness and bringing you into the kingdom of God. It's a demonstration of power. It's a specific administration of power called the grace of salvation. The second is the grace of reconciliation. The grace of reconciliation. The first is the grace of salvation. Second, the grace of reconciliation. The third is the grace of confirmation. Confirmation. I'll explain these, of course, to you. Uh, the grace of, of uh, confirmation. The fourth is the grace of maturation. Maturation. By which you grow from being an infant to the weos of God. The power to become. He gives us grace that is represented by the power to become. The e weos theo. The mature sons of God. There's a grace for that. And finally, there it all leads up to, and each one is a lower order that is leading up to and is therefore inherently subsumed in a greater order. So when you reach the final order, the grace of exact representation, when you are in that administration of God's grace, you also are mature, you've also been conformed, you've been reconciled, and you are saved. Okay? But, and you, as you are progressing, you have to move from one to the other to the other. That's called a movement from glory to glory. Grace upon grace, exactly. You're receiving, that's what receiving double, triple, quadruple, etc. portions of grace means. Right? Most people settle for the grace of salvation. 
and they build they build a mythology around that. And they talk about how once you're saved, you're always saved. And they don't have the first clue as to what they're talking about by actually being saved. You know, nowhere in the Bible does the, is there reference to the grace of salvation meaning going to heaven when you die. Now don't misunderstand me. God rescues you from hell. Mm -hmm. That's part of what he saves you from. But it's not even the whole of the matter. We settle for the most minimal things. The grace of salvation is about how God translates you <coughs> pardon me, from the powers of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Now that kingdom is called both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Because every kingdom is about a domain. That's what we mean by a kingdom. Kingdom is a domain with a king, with a sphere of rule, with authority to rule, with subjects, and with an economy. That's what every kingdom, these are the elements of any kingdom, every kingdom. Now, what is the domain of the kingdom of God? Well, we know it's God's kingdom because it's called the kingdom of God. So we know who the king is. And he has set his king, his chosen one, upon the throne of his authority. So the king of the kingdom of God is the one who claims that God gave him the right to rule this kingdom when he claimed all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's the king. And God himself said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's why the kingdom is called the kingdom of God. It's the sovereign authority of God by which this kingdom is constituted and sustained. What is the, and Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom of God because God gave that position to Christ. Okay? What is the domain over which he rules? What are the territories subject to the rule of Jesus Christ the king? What did he say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, because heaven is the greater realm, greater than the earth, the heaven is where the seat of his authority resides and from which the power is projected, the earth is called his footstool, which is a reference to the lower region. Now, we could go into why God created the heavens and the earth and put man not in the heavens but in the earth initially because there are things to be worked out in man that have to do with possessing eternal life that required him to be subject to a body that could suffer pain, injury, and even death. 
how you behave in a vulnerable body is the best template of what you believe. Okay. When you're under pressure, what you do is where you are. And we would not know that any other way. That's why he made us a little lower than the angels, yet crowning us with divine authority to work out the issue of our choice to serve him. Which is why when the enemy came into the garden, he didn't ask around about possible ways to approach him. He went straight to the question of who is God to you? Whose authority are you willing, under whose authority are you willing to be found? That's why. He didn't go here or there. He didn't discuss whether tangerines were better than, <laughs> than apples. Whose authority governs you? He intended to drive the wedge between God and man on the issue of to whom was man subject. Salvation is the restoration of choice regarding your citizenship. Under whose authority as king are you going to find yourself? Okay. So whenever we are discussing the issue of sovereignty, or as you would say here, sovereignty, we're talking about the settling authority in the domain that you, in which you find yourself as a citizen. In ancient Greece, there, there were city-states. And a person was a citizen of a city. That word for citizen has made its way into the English lexicon as the word politics because the Greek word is the word polis, P-O-L-I-S, polis. It's a root word for population, people, politics, polity, words relating to citizenship and governance because no one in ancient Greece saw himself as a free citizen with rights against the state. Because those were days of marauding armies where war would occur at will and there were no agreements between nations that would prevent even one city-state from attacking another. So your citizenship in a state was the best and perhaps only guarantee you had of some level of social stability. So you relied on your God, you relied on the in integrity of your city walls and the gates of that city, you relied upon the military force that guarded the city, you relied upon the integrity of your king, Otherwise, you're just a guy in the field when the armies came. 
and you had no stability. You had no permanence. So citizenship in a kingdom was a well-defined concept to men and women of antiquity. It was a prized thing. This, the, the, your citizenship included your devotion to the God of that city. You remember when Paul was in Ephesus? That was it the silversmith Alexander stirred the people up because he was preaching about another God. And what was the cry? Great is Diana of the Ephesians. The silversmith saw that if this new God replaced the old God, that it would adversely affect their commerce. So they didn't go around and talk about tariffs and all of that. They went right for the jugular. They said, let's charge these guys with the most offensive thing that our city could possibly charge them with, and that is introducing another god, because that was the root of their citizenship. Salvation is essentially a rescue operation. Because in the kingdom of darkness, you are in bondage to your own soul's entrapment of your soul by its own lusts. The word for lust is the word epitomea, from which we get the English word epitome. Epitome. When you say somebody is the epitome of a thing, you mean this is the thing that defines them. Okay? If you are the epitome, you are, we, we would say today, what we mean, the language we'd use today is he's the poster boy for. Do you have that expression here in South Africa? He's the poster boy for greed, or he's the poster boy for narcissism, or he's the poster boy for whatever. Okay? That word in antiquity was the word epitome. He's the epitome of. So the word lust was a term that described your behavior almost as a caricature. The soul, when it is caught in one of the lusts of which the soul is capable, and there are three of them in sp specifically, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Don't have time to unpack that just here and now. We have a device, metonymy, metonymy, where we refer to the thing by its part. We refer to the whole by its part. There's a figure of speech in English called metonymy. And so if an example of it is when we typically talk of lust, we, we typically refer to sexual lust. That's referring to the thing by its most common uh, visible application. But sexual lust is not the depiction 
of lust. It's an example of lust. The depiction of lust is that you will sacrifice anything to gain the thing that is so drawing upon you. Okay? So you are the epitome of the pursuit of that thing. Because whatever you seek, you will find. And if that's what you're seeking, you'll excel in it. You'll be the poster boy of it. You'll be the epitome of it. That's the meaning of the word lust. The kingdom of darkness is set up to appeal to the lusts of the soul, which are three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It promises you that if you chase that mirage, you'll find it, you'll get it. But because it's a lie, nobody ever gets it. You give up everything to get it, and it makes you ashamed in the end. Because it's an illusion. That condition is described as death. And it is the, it is the way of existing in a kingdom of darkness. Your citizenship, when it's in that kingdom, has you worship the illusion of yourself being powerful that has been created by the God that created that kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And that God is called the God of this world. The Greek term is a combination of, uh, of the word power and rule. And it's the word cosmokrato. Because the word kratos is the word for manifested power. And cosmos is the word for world. Cosmos is the word for world. So that world, that kingdom of darkness, is ruled over by the cosmocrator who feeds upon your lust to draw you deeper and deeper down into darkness by the illusion that you can that is always held before you but never attainable and it's the illusion that if you pursue it harder you'll be able to be your own god you'll be independent you shall be as gods knowing good and evil you don't need god that's the foundation of that kingdom and your citizenship in that kingdom is an existence called death. So you're dead while you are still alive. Why? Because it's the ultimate expression of the life of the soul, separate from God. None of the life of Zoe pierces that darkness. And whoever is trapped in it cannot free himself cannot free himself. And in fact, the more you think you can free yourself, the deeper in the coils of this dragon you are, you're, 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 you're sucked into and squeezed where the very life in you 
is squeezed out of you. It's an existence called darkness. It's an existence characterized as death. When Jesus sent his disciples into this dark domain, he said to them that he had commissioned them, he had authorized them to go into this domain and bring out captives and lead them out of that into the kingdom of God. And he said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against your coming. Now listen, when we don't understand the things we're talking about, here's how we understand that scripture. The gates of hell are coming against us. And we are just trying to hold on until either we're raptured or Jesus comes. What? Utter rubbish, silly, foolish stuff. It says the gates cannot prevail against you because you are the attacker of the gates. Because in, in, in the ancient days, cities, domains were set up like that. I had the occasion to visit Solomon's Chariot City in Megiddo. Uh, and I'm sure you've seen that many times, as many times as you've been over there. And you know that uh, the, the, the walls of the city that are still standing, Megiddo, uh, are 12, 14, 15 feet high. They're casemate walls. But leading up to the gate is like a maze. You come in, you turn, you turn again, you turn, you go, and then finally you get to the gates. Because the gates were set up to make sure that at some point in the attack upon the gates, the gates were the vulnerable places of the city. So they set up the gates to take advantage of the vulnerabilities of an attacking army. The archers on the wall at some point would have a shot at your back with their arrow because at some point you had to turn your back to them as you came in. So what he's saying to, to, to his disciples, when you are the attacking army under my authority that I, with which I have commissioned you, to go and rescue people who are behind, who are entrapped behind the gates of hell in the kingdom of darkness. When you come, that device, that trick that is supposed to make you vulnerable will be absolutely worthless against you. That's grace. That's manifestation of power. He's commissioned us to destroy the works of the devil. And the grace to do it is the grace of salvation. You see why we can't be talking about grace as mercy? This is the active demonstration of the power of God. Before you were in your mother's womb, 
God knew you. Before you were born, he set you apart. You had an identity in God before you had an identity in your, in your flesh. In fact, God reminded Jeremiah that his identity in God, was, which being before his mother's womb, his identity in God was to speak forth God's word as a prophet, to reveal the mind of God to his generation. Now, when you come into the world, you don't know who you are because your reference is not to that, to what you were formed to become. How you were to carry that specific endowment of the presence of God that he meant to put on display in your person. That's the manner in which God becomes incarnate. Carnal is the word for flesh. Incarnate means in the flesh. Right? Now God gave you eternal life, Zoe, to sustain you, to carry a specific manifestation of God that he chose before you were in your mother's womb so you had nothing to do with it. He configured you to carry his presence in a manner that demonstrates the living God and his character in you, in the world, as your destiny. Your mind has to be renewed before you could lay a hold of what that is. And there's a grace that is called the grace of reconciliation. God wants to put you back into the state of being in which you were when you were in his mind so that you can function out of that when you are here on the earth. That's why he would give you eternal life. Now, I'm not going to unpack that any further because my time has really gone tonight. Tomorrow, I want to, I'll start out with talking a little bit more about the grace of salvation. I'll unpack the grace of reconciliation. Then we'll talk about the role of suffering in, in conformation. Because you want to go one way, and he has another way, and his way is the only one that counts. So he's going to conform you to the likeness of his son. And although that sounds like a great thing to happen, it is very likely the most painful thing that will happen when you are being conformed. To be conformed to something means you lose your independence from it. Yeah. When, when my clothes were made to conform to my body, they stopped being bolts of cloth. They were cut and fitted and if they had a mind to resist, it didn't matter. They were, made, they were going to be conformed to my form. I have no illusions about this. God is going to conform you to his being. And the glory of God will come on you as he conforms you 
to the manifest expression of his being. The Son is the radiance of his Father's glory and the exact expression of the invisible God. He's going to tailor you to the exact specifications for which he foreknew you. You will not avoid being conformed to the likeness of the Son. And he has a way of doing it. He absorbs you into the Son. So whatever is true of the Son is how you are going to be tailored by him. So, we'll continue on to explore. This is the message of wisdom among the mature. We're not children anymore. Not unless we are actually children. As we grow up, we will become the plenty potentiary of the exousia of his dunamis. <laughs> That's a good note to leave it on. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>